Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now on the markets, Lizanne Saunders joins with Charles Schwab, their chief investment strategist. And Lizanne, I've got up on the screen on SPX, you know, down 16% December of a few years ago, down 20-some percent in the ugliness a year or so ago. And then, you know, in the recent pullback, down 9.9%. You have had the courage to stay in the market and participate. Justify that. How do you go through the process of staying in the market when we pull back? Well, it depends on what you mean by stay. What we have been espousing, which is not terribly unique uh, versus any other, quote, normal time in the environment, is not just stay, but be disciplined, particularly around things like periodic rebalancing. And specific to that, our message has been for investors that have historically done rebalancing on a calendar basis. They might do it on a quarterly basis or an annual basis, similar to what uh, mutual funds do. They, They typically rebalance the last week in each quarter but to let volatility be your guide as to when to uh, rebalance. So have your portfolio dictate a message around rebalancing. So you're sort of trimming into some of these big pops in the market. You're adding during periods of weakness. It's not all or nothing decision-making, but it keeps you in gear and forces us, of course, to do what we know we're supposed to, which is you know, add low and, and trim high. So it's that rebalancing shift that we have been uh, pushing this year. Lizanne, just in terms of your approach to single names, what are you advising clients at the moment? So, of course, I don't analyze individual uh, stocks, but to investors who like to pick stocks, what we have been telling investors to focus on is factor more than either sector or style. And the factor that has been most consistently successful in this environment, really throughout the entire year, pre-pandemic, you know, into the, the bear market portion of this, and then since March 23rd low, is balance sheet quality. And even in sectors that have not been as dominant from a performance perspective, that quality factor has been leadership. So you can look for that um, quality basis. And I think factor in particular is more important than sector in this environment. So, Lizanne, yesterday, BlackRock chief executive Larry Fink came out after they reported that their assets had surged to nearly $8 trillion. (laughs) And he said, I believe we still have more to go on the upside. He was talking about equities. We have a strong conviction that the average investor still is underinvested. Some people say he's just talking his book. Do you agree with him? Well, it depends on what you mean by the average investor. You can break the market and investors into cohorts. I think the, you know, the cohort that's getting a lot of attention recently, I've been calling the newly minted day trader. I'm not sure there's a lot of uh, liquidity uh, left there, but they're trading fairly small amounts. If you look at other measures of uh, sentiment, certainly from an attitudinal uh, standpoint, older investors, they're a little bit more cautious. But when you look at money market uh, funds uh, and the amount in there sitting there as as sort of pseudo cash on the sidelines, I don't necessarily like that term, relative to overall market cap, it's a fairly low number. And cash in mutual funds is a fairly low number, too. If you look over the long term at households' exposure to equities, it's down a little bit off the recent peak, but in kind of the highest quintile historically. So I'm not so sure I buy the argument that there's just massive amounts of money 
um, sitting there waiting to go into the market. I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, Lizanne, I want to go back to something you and I know well, which is the work of Stephen Ross at MIT on factor analysis. You've got to talk more about this. I want you to explain why so much of what we do day to day within investment firms and within the newly minted ignores factor analysis and what's going to be the, the, the variable out three and five years that drives Stephen Ross's original world. Well, the, the newly minted day traders, uh, the, the data we have, both anecdotally and then just looking at the activity among that cohort, clearly is not focusing really on anything terribly fundamental, be it valuation uh, factors, long-term earnings growth. I think it's, it's purely a momentum uh, play, and that momentum can be in areas that may be justified by some fundamentals, uh, certain tech-type stocks but also uh, just purely gambling plays, like some of the activity that we saw in um, areas like the bankruptcy stock. So uh, I, would, I wouldn't sort of add that cohort in mm-hmm. as making decisions based on any uh, fundamental. I think the reason why the quality factor, and I, and I agree, I think there will be increasing focus on factor-based decision-making, um, not just because of the, the positive bias it's had in terms of performance in this environment, but the realization that there's so much diversity within sectors that making that blanket sector call is probably not the, the path toward long-term investing success, that those, those factors around things like in this environment, quality, I think uh, supersede a, fo- a more simplistic focus just on the sector level. Lizanne, great to catch up this morning. Thanks for your time. Lizanne Saunders there Never of Charles Schwab weighing in on this equity market. Right now, Andrew Sheets joins us with Morgan Stanley. Always wonderful to have him on, truly on the dynamics and correlations of the market. Andrew Sheets, is the equity market alone here, or is it other markets that are adapting and adjusting to the expectation out there? Well, uh, good morning, and, and good to be with you. You know, what I, I think is pretty fascinating about both the equity market, but, but a lot of different markets, is that you know the, the headline levels speak to quite a bit of optimism. You know, we're back near the highs in the S&P 500. Um, that, that would clearly suggest a quite optimistic outlook on, on the economy and events. And yet, I think across a lot of these markets, you still have a lot of the kind of the micro relationships, the inner market relationships that reflect a lot of growth pessimism, um, right? Small caps still trade at a historically large discount to large caps. Yields are still very low. The curve is still very flat. Um, the ratio between high yield and investment grade spreads is still pretty wide. Um, and, and all those things are, are what you would expect if investors were less confident about growth, not more confident. So I, I do think it's a pretty nuanced picture. Yes, you know, the headline indices are high. It's, it's easy to kind of read that as, oh, there's, there's an enormous amount of growth optimism that's come into the market. But, but actually, I think looking below the surface, what I think that would suggest is, is there's a lot more confidence, I think, on there's a, that, that there's a lot of liquidity in the market, then there's a lot of confidence and high expectation that growth is going to rebound strongly. Andrew, I might have misheard you. Did you just say that spreads are still pretty wide? 
Yeah, so I, I, I know it might have sounded like a, like a misquote. No, if we, if we look at you know the, the relationship between high yield and investment grade, um, you know that relationship is still pretty pretty elevated um, in, in the sense that high yield spreads have come in a lot less relative to to higher quality spreads. And even you know within the high yield um, market, you know you still see um, pretty average levels of um, evaluation gaps between say kind of single B credit and, and double B credit. So you know our, our view is it has you know is and, and remains pretty constructive on the credit space. You know yes it has rallied in. Yes there's a lot less value than there was there over the summer. But I think this is an asset class that rarely trades at the average. And I, I think we're in one of those phases where we're moving from spreads being kind of too wide to probably the next phase being they need to move to being too tight. All right, Andrew, John Farrow is just setting me up because he wants me to ask you, I'm sure, about the incredible uh, amount of money that's poured into the triple C space and this question about whether we've seen the end of the bankruptcy cycle. In other words, are you saying that spreads are going to tighten because credit quality is perhaps underpriced right now, that basically investors aren't giving the benefit of the doubt to the likes of Carnival and Delta and these other companies that have yet to get back on board? Or are you saying that liquidity will overcome all of those concerns and they won't be an issue for creditors? Yeah, so I think it's actually a little bit of a, a little bit between the two. I, I think actually it would be a pretty common, pretty normal credit cycle to see the market uh, rally and improve ahead of kind of the, the ahead of the peak in the default rate, ahead of um, the the worst of, of of the downgrade cycle. You know, we saw some of that in 2009, 2010, where where the market had had largely recovered in 2010, even as there were still quite a few downgrades to happen, even as you know many companies did go on and, and default. That the credit market, I, I think, does have some some precedent of of moving well ahead of of those factors. And so, I you know, I guess what I would see it more consistent with is that kind of that normal that normal cycle. That yes, you know, you still will see downgrades, you'll still see defaults. But that you know the credit market has done, I think, a reasonable job of, of some differentiation there, and that those those events won't be enough to derail the broader high yield market. Andrew, you're so constructive. You're making Lisa depressed. Can you just tell me <laughs> what would make you bearish on a Sunday when you write that yeah. Sunday star note that everyone wants to be on the distribution list for? What makes oh, Andrew God. Sheets bearish? Thank you, John. That note when it comes out, what changes it? Yeah, sure. So, so I do think the case for credit is better than, than other asset classes. You know, we have we have less upside to our to our U.S. equity targets. We have less upside to our emerging market equity targets. I think those are markets that we do think are, are more fully valued than the credit market is. And and I do think if we you know kind of think through U.S. you know election outcomes, and and I think there's a lot of focus on you know what what's the immediate market reaction to different combinations. But but there are certainly combinations where you could uh, inhibit further fiscal stimulus in, in the U.S. And I think that could be quite problematic. You know if you if you had to ask me you know what's the broader scenario that would worry me most longer term, it, it's almost that we have a little bit of a groundhog day with, with 2010, 2011, where, you know, back then we were coming out of a recession, we were coming out of a, a really bad place. There was a lot of stimulus in the system, and then the stimulus just kind of stopped, and the market focus shifted to balancing the budget, um, fiscal austerity, and those types of things 
really slowed down the recovery. And so my, my concern would be that maybe you, you go through that again, that you've, you've had this very sharp recovery off the lows in, in March and April, um, that, that actually kind of policymakers take their, their feet off the gas next year, and the recovery isn't as, as strong as we expect. Andrew, great to catch up. Andrew Sheets and Morgan Stanley. And congratulations on the call so far in 2020. Far more constructive than the consensus through this year for an economic recovery. Not just Andrew Sheets, Mike Wilson on equities, Ellen Zetner on the economy in the United States. Chet and I are leading that research. Matt Hornback leading the rate side of things. Right now on The Reality, which is if you're a shareholder of Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, guess what? It's been a lousy 10 years. You compare it to a lot of other things out there, given all the challenges, it hasn't happened. Fortress Gorman, okay, 8% a year, maybe 10-year return. Goldman Sachs, totally unacceptable, under 4% return per year. Christian Ballou holding court at Credit Suisse, and particularly at Bernstein, joins us now with autonomous research and their senior analyst. Christian, you are long these guys, and particularly long Goldman Sachs. How do they do better than the terrible performance of the last 10 years? Good, good, good. good morning, Tom. Um, I'll try and help you on Goldman. I don't know if I can help you on the iPhone, though, the iPhone 12. <laughs> um, on, on Goldman, look, look I think um, there are many differences this cycle versus last cycle um, in terms of business mix. Um, I think the lack of um, onerous incremental regulation just generally how well managed these companies are relative to the life cycle. So uh, I do think um, there are there are better prospects for uh, both the brokerage stocks, uh, Goldman and Morgan, um, you know, headed forward. And you, you've seen that somewhat this year in a recession, in a somewhat tough environment. For example, this morning, Goldman putting up um, almost 19% ROTCE, um, which which really was best in class relative to the other um, banks that have reported so far. So, so I, I do think, um, you know, you know, knock on wood, this time is somewhat different. You know, I look at this, some, this time is different. It starts with management. The belief over 10 years, going back to Brad Hintz at Sanford Bernstein, is that, you know, they're really in it for themselves. They're really not doing it for the shareholders. What's changed? Uh, well, t- t- today's results are a really good example of what has changed, right? So, for example, a big part of the really strong results is discipline on compensation. Um, and that speaks to a business that's uh, far more uh, geared towards sort of platform businesses versus people businesses, uh, which allows far more operating leverage. Now, clearly, um, um, this is still a talent business and you still have to you know, pay up for performance and you still have to attract the very best. Uh, but what with the business makes and the focus on efficiency. Um, again, like this morning, they, they can uh, put up decent results. Christian, platform business versus people business and efficiency. It screams job cuts. How big will the job cuts be next year on Wall Street? Yeah, no, look, look I think, um, you know, I think broadly speaking, the, um, you know, just generally speaking, you've seen cuts on Wall Street uh, over the last decade for the most part. And as you see automation increase, um, digitization increase, um, electronic trading increase, there are probably, there's probably still going to be, um, you know, some, uh, so, some more cuts. It, it, it is inevitable. Um, and that said, um, there are also opportunities that come, come through. 
Um, you've seen the likes of Goldman Sachs, for example, recruit far heavily, far more heavily in engineering type disciplines and, and uh, technology type disciplines versus what they would have traditionally, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So, so I, I do think, um, to your point, that there will be um, some headcount rationalization, uh, but I also think there's a lot of opportunities in areas like, like technology to, to bring on new talent. Which bank right now, based on the earnings results that we've gotten so far, are you most impressed by? Yeah, so, so I look over Goldman and Morgan. So um, it would have to be Goldman, I would say, so far. And, and you know, again, just, just, just looking at the returns today, um, um, you, know, uh, you know, kind of speaks to that. I would say more broadly speaking, if, if I was kind of thinking about um, the more broad strategic direction of, of the companies, uh, we really like Morgan Stanley. I think James Goldman has done a really good job in, in changing the business mix. They've been very um, clever in the way they've used excess capital to really remix the business by buying E-Trade and you know, very recently Eaton Vance. Almost two-thirds of that of, of Morgan Stanley will come from you know, capital-like businesses like wealth and asset, manage, uh, asset management. So, so overall, I would say Morgan Stanley, um, in terms of thinking about the long-term and strategic direction, uh, Morgan Stanley is the stock we, we like the most. Kristen, before we let you go, just on the acquisition option, it's an option that's not available for many of, of the other big banks. It's an option that could be available to Goldman. Why do you think Goldman hasn't gone in that direction? Yeah, so, you know, look, I, I think, um, you know, again, Morgan Stanley is somewhat more advanced strategically than Gold, right? You know, a, a newer management team, um, less in the way of capital flexibility. Um, you know, so, so I do think they're somewhat behind strategically to Morgan Stanley. And, and, you know, you need to know where you want to go first and be very clear on your direction before you go out and do deals. Um, but, but, I, but I do think they will be in the conversation for, for acquisitions. Um, they're beginning to build capital now, and, and you know they've always spoken to wealth management, asset management, and digital consumer banking as areas that would benefit from scale acquisitions. So, so I do think Goldman will be in the conversation for um, acquisition going forward. Christian, looking forward to getting you back on the show soon. Look forward to it. Christian Bolu there, Autonomous Research Senior Analyst on the Banks. Right now, this is a joy. Michael Feroli came out of Booth School Chicago in New York University as a Fed economist and joined a small bank in New York called J.P. Morgan. He wrote for Melman, he wrote for Kasman and the others, and within their weekly prospects, defined in this nation this odd phrase, potential GDP. John and Lisa have a whole bunch of questions for Dr. Feroli on where we are right now. Michael, I want to go back to your initial acclaim on potential GDP. Do you adjust that statistic because of the pandemic? So I think that's an open question right now. Normally, a really bad recession would lead one to lower their estimate of trend GDP growth because there are longer run impacts from short run events like recessions. However, I think it's a little early to say right now because this recession was so short and the recovery so far has been robust enough that it's, uh, I think it's an open question. So for example, uh, normally, one would say that the slowdown in capital spending uh, after a recession would lead to slower productivity growth. Right now, it's not clear how much capital spending is actually slowing. We obviously had a bad second quarter, but a, a good rebound in the third quarter. So I think um, the jury is still out. Uh, it's something we, we've been considering uh, quite a bit, but right now we're leaving our estimate unchanged at 1.5% for, uh, for potential GDP growth. 
Michael, since an increasing number of people are saying the same thing that you are, that this uh, economic recovery has been more robust than people had expected, and that the recession perhaps a bit shallower, does that mean that there is a greater chance of bigger inflationary pressures given the amount of money that the federal government has thrown at this? At the margin, yes. Uh, you know, better growth should lead to better, firmer inflation outcomes. It's still the case, however, that unemployment looks like it will be elevated uh, for several quarters to come. So, uh, so while we may revise our views towards somewhat higher inflation, it's still going to be inflation that we think will remain uh, below the Fed's two percent uh, objective for uh, for PCE inflation, at least. So, directionally, I would agree with what you're saying, but I wouldn't want to take it too far and say that we're, you know, we're looking at a big inflationary uh, year to come. Michael, we talked about this before. I just wonder how polarised the conversation is with clients at the moment on this issue, on inflation. Well, inflation's gotten interesting. Uh, so we obviously had a few uh, uh, weak months around uh, uh, during the, the worst of the pandemic. We've had a few strong months since. Uh, a lot of that strength has been reversing some of the categories that were weak uh, during the pandemic, but it has kept the, uh, the discussion alive. Uh, I think it's... Um, you know, my, in my opinion, I think we are in a disinflationary environment. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you say, the discussion, uh, I'm sure it's polarizing uh, as much as it was perhaps in 2009 when we first were uh, experimenting with expanding the Fed balance sheet. But people definitely uh, are interested in it, particularly given the central importance now it has in the uh, prospects for a future Fed rate hike. We caught up with Catherine Man of City yesterday, and she brought up a series of issues. I'd love your thoughts on them. She was talking about the gap between consumers' perception of inflation, statistical measures of inflation, and financial market pricing of inflation. Michael, how do those three different things, what's that spread look like at the moment? Right. So I think uh, financial market expectations are closer to what you're seeing in the actual statistical measures of inflation. Uh, I would say consumer perceptions of inflation are higher I think one of the reasons for that is that consumers tend to uh, uh, put more weight on prices that are uh, more salient. So, for example, food prices tend to uh, seem to uh, uh, carry more weight in consumers' perceptions than they do in the uh, than they do in the actual uh, baskets of goods and services. And food prices have been a little firm recently, uh, uh, so I think that may be one factor that is leading to that disconnect between consumer perceptions and either financial market expectations, which are, you know, remain relatively depressed, or, uh, you know, the actual measures like core PCE, which is also um, subdued right now. Michael, how does real estate play into our guesstimate of new inflation? How do rents play in, oh, owners adjusted rent, et cetera? How does ownership of homes play in to our guesstimate or reality of inflation in 12 or 36 months? Yeah, this, this is actually a pretty interesting issue because uh, both tenants' rent and owners' imputed rent, which is the rent people who own their homes would be paying, <clears throat> hypothetically, if they had to rent uh, those homes, uh, both of those has have decelerated very sharply in the past yeah. uh, three months. Some of that may be due to a phenomenon that is similar to what we saw in the early 2000s, which is when there's a very hot housing market and everyone's rushing to buy a house, what you see is weakness in the rental market. Uh, so it may be a bit of a statistical mirage in a sense, uh, but it, nonetheless, it will feature uh, pretty prominently because those measures are over 20 percent of the core PCE uh, basket that the Fed looks at so uh, so carefully. So um, so maybe sort of an odd byproduct of a hot housing market is a depressed 
uh, or depressed set of rental measures for inflation. Michael, pushing forward the next six to 12 months, how much does your unemployment forecast vary depending on whether there's a fiscal support plan passed in Washington or not? Yeah, it could, it could vary quite a bit because the growth outlook could vary quite a bit. Uh, you know, if we got something like, you know, some of the numbers have been coalescing around $2 trillion recently, you know, that's uh, that's 10% of GDP, even if you haircut that for, um, you know, people saving some of that stimulus, that would still have a pretty significant effect on GDP growth. And, right. you know, as GDP growth goes, so goes with some adjustment, the unemployment rate. So, uh, so clearly, the, the, you know, this is... Um, you know, the markets are not, right. I think, uh, misled to be focusing so intently on on where fiscal stimulus negotiations are going. Michael Ferroli, I don't get much gloom out of the House of Kasman, but you had that chart on the trade deficit and weekly prospects this week. Tell me about the twin deficits. Do you link together our trade deficit and our fiscal, our, our new and enlarged fiscal deficit into something that you need to think about, study about, write about, and we need to understand? Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is normally in recessions, the U.S. trade deficit tends to uh, tends to contract because U.S. demand for imports tend to contract more than uh, foreign demand for exports. That hasn't been the case in this most recent uh, recession, in part because it was unusually global in nature. So usually the U.S. kind of leads the global recession. Uh, this time, everyone kind of, you know partook of the recession in a way equally. And so that was... One factor I think that contributed to this widening the trade deficit. The other thing is that, given the nature of this recession, the U.S. Uh, actually runs a uh, a surplus in trade and services. Uh, however, trade and services has contracted quite a bit given the uh, inability to uh, you know maintain social distance in many of those services. Uh, so we think it's uh, you know that that widening the trade deficit may partly be due to uh, fiscal deficit concerns, uh, fiscal deficit issues. But I think it's also uh, partly due to uh, uh, the global nature of this recent slowdown. Michael, great to catch up as always. Send our best to the team, won't you? Michael Ferrari there, JP Morgan Securities Chief, US Economist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.